Um, and with that, I'm going to invite Nicole Orzakowski, the Section Chief for Rheumatology, up to introduce today's speaker. Good morning, everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today our speaker for Medical Grand Rounds, Dr. Jessica Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a rheumatologist and an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. <clears throat> she spends her time there taking care of the patients with scleroderma, as well as conducting both clinical and translational research. After completing her medical degree at SUNY Stony Brook, Dr. Gordon completed her internal medicine residency at Georgetown University and stayed on there as chief resident before going on to hospital for special surgery to complete her rheumatology fellowship as well as a Master of Science in Clinical Investigation. Dr. Gordon has been a co-investigator in several investigator-initiated clinical trials, including a study of tyrosine kinase inhibitors in systemic sclerosis, as well as belimumab in scleroderma, and that's a drug that's been approved for lupus, in case you don't know that. She's also the co-PI for several multicenter clinical trials in scleroderma. Dr. Gordon is the site PI for several scleroderma registries, including the NIH-sponsored genome research in African-American scleroderma patients. She works on multiple subcommittees of the Scleroderma Clinical Trials Consortium, and that work focuses on better understanding of arthritis and the musculoskeletal features of scleroderma. She's involved in several multicenter clinical projects looking at risk factors as well as prognostic markers in this disease. As I mentioned earlier, her research is both clinical and translational. Dr. Gordon received the Clinician Scientist Development Award from HSS. Using blood and skin samples from patients with scleroderma, her group looked at gene expression profiling as a biomarker to predict and understand response to treatment in these patients. Dr. Gordon has multiple clinical and basic science collaborators around the country, including some at Dartmouth College who are here today, so welcome. And Dr. Gordon, thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us today, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Thank you for that uh, very nice introduction. Can, uh, can everyone hear me okay? All right, um, great. So I'm really happy to be here today, and I'm going to be um, talking about systemic sclerosis, uh, diagnosis, and management. Um, I have some research funding. And um, so systemic sclerosis of all the rheumatic diseases has the highest mortality and the highest rate of disability. So in rheumatology, we've made really tremendous strides in terms of the way we've been able to improve people's lives who have rheumatoid arthritis and vasculitis, lupus, and scleroderma really has lagged behind in terms of um, our, our level of improvement so far. So hopefully this next uh, period of time we're going to see that change. Um, so what is it that's different about systemic sclerosis than these other kinds of conditions that uh, rheumatologists have been a bit more successful with? Um, one, so in common with them is uh, autoimmunity and um, immune dysregulation, um, and we're able to treat that aspect of it. Um, we can treat inflammation, and a lot of our therapies, which I'll discuss today, really do focus there. Um, but systemic sclerosis is different because vasculopathy is so prominent, and so is fibrosis. 
And those are areas where we're less uh, able to target at this point in time. The pathogenesis of systemic sclerosis is complex, and it involves um, multiple cellular components. Um, initially, we'll see uh, endothelial cell activation uh, with expression of adhesion molecules, and the whole vascular bed um, becomes activated. We also see immune dysregulation with involvement of B cells, T cells, macrophages. Um, so a lot of different components of the immune system, not just one. And then we can see activation of fibroblasts. They become myofibroblasts, create more uh, proteins that are involved in um, De depositing extra extracellular matrix. And then we also see involvement of the innate immune system and other aspects of the immune system so that who knows where to start. Um, so I'm going to start with a typical case and go through my initial approach to a patient um, with this case. And then I'm going to move on to talking about management with a focus on skin and lung disease and um, try to get into some future directions. So a 40-year-old woman presents with arthralgia, hand stiffness, puffiness of the hands, and numbness of her fingers. She has a history of Raynaud -no for a year, which has gotten progressively worse. And this, these are the hands of a patient I have seen, I have seen recently. Um, you just, it's pretty subtle. You see uh, some degree of edema in the hands. Um, this is a pretty nonspecific appearance. I think maybe somebody could look this way if they were very overheated or um, uh, maybe somebody with early rheumatoid arthritis could have a similar appearance of puffiness of the hands. Um, this is an ACR slide, an American College of Rheumatology slide of puffy hands. Um, and I think this, uh, you know, also shows that same sort of edema in the hands. Maybe you get a sense of a little bit more induration occurring in the skin of the hands here. And this would be something that you could feel better than you can see. Not hands like this. This is what we're trying to prevent. Or this. This is when, you know... The, the horse is really out of the barn here. So we're trying to work where we're nice and early here so we can prevent these severe contractures and disability. So these are the ACR ULAR classification criteria. They're, they're tiny, and I apologize for that. Um, uh, and these are classification criteria to be used in order to make a clear uh, classification of a patient to put them in the context of a clinical trial. But um, these are also really useful in clinical practice in terms of thinking, what do we need to figure out about this patient who's coming to us to figure out if they have scleroderma or not? So the first item, which you probably can't read, is skin thickening of the hands um, proximal to the MCP joints. And if a patient has this, that's enough uh, to um, be considered uh, classified as having systemic sclerosis. Some folks will have skin thickening of the fingers, like puffy fingers, as I showed you, or just distal sclerodactyly, and those have different weights. 
Uh, patients may have ulcers at the tips of their fingers if Ray nose is prominent. Uh, telangiectasia can be seen, abnormal nail fold capillaries, pulmonary hypertension or interstitial lung disease, the presence of Raynaud phenomenon, and then the presence of systemic sclerosis-associated antibodies. So this sort of structures what we're going to need to think about for this patient. And um, I'm going to start with the concept of nail-fold capillaroscopy. So that, that's new in terms of um, those classification criteria. They weren't included in earlier classification criteria. And it's actually a very powerful tool that the rheumatologist has um, because it's available right there when you're examining the patient. Um, there are different capillaroscopic techniques, and I use a dermatoscope, which is uh, pictured here. That gives you 10 times magnification. It's not a very expensive piece of equipment. It fits in your lab coat pocket. Um, whereas um, a, a wide-field microscopy or um, video microscopes, which are give very nice pictures uh, and are great for research, are you know not practical in the clinic. You can't take them out on consult rounds with you. Um, so these are some pictures of what you can see when you look through a dermatoscope. And the image on the left is normal, but you can still see the blood vessels there. And then the image on the right is abnormal. You see dilation of nail folds, and you see some hemorrhage here. And when you see something like this, you know when you're sitting with that patient on that initial consult that this is a patient that has connective tissue disease. And um, with a look like this, it is likely that they have systemic sclerosis, although some people with dermatomyositis can have a similar appearance. These are um, images that are taken with uh, a video capillaroscope. So these are you know, much higher resolution and higher magnification. So, so there's a whole body of research that looks into this to look at nail fold uh, capillaroscopy as uh, a marker of prognosis. Uh, in the um, upper left, we have a normal pattern where we see all of the blood vessels are nice and even. They have some twists and turns, and that's normal. Um, this is a patient with early systemic sclerosis where you have these um, dilated capillaries or giant capillaries. Here we start seeing microhemorrhage, and in a later stage patient, there's real, really obliteration of those capillaries with um, these uh, unusual forms of capillaries, which are uh, failed attempts at angiogenesis of those blood vessels. And as I said, this is a very powerful tool that the rheumatologist has at hand. Um, when one sees abnormal nail fold capillaries in the presence of somebody presenting with only the Raynaud phenomenon, um, that really increases the likelihood that this patient is going to go on to develop connective tissue disease. So if we saw a patient with Raynaud who had a positive ANA, the odds ratio for them going on to develop any connective tissue disease is about three, whereas if we see abnormal nail fold capillary, capillaries, that odds ratio is over 14. 
Um, so again, really, really useful tool and, and part of our initial management. We're also on our exam going to be determining if that patient has limited or diffuse cutaneous disease. This is an important distinction because the prognosis for those with limited disease is, is much better in many ways than it is for those who have diffuse disease. <coughs> Patients who have limited systemic sclerosis can have involvement distal to the elbows, distal to the knees, and the face can be involved as well. Whereas if proximal extremities or the trunk is involved, those patients, by definition, have diffuse systemic sclerosis. But it's tricky when you meet the patient for the first time because this is a condition that evolves over time. So you can see a patient who appears to have limited cutaneous disease at that moment and then will go on to develop diffuse systemic sclerosis. So in that kind of setting, the autoantibodies are really helpful to us too, and I'll go over those. And then when we consider these patients, even if they're feeling relatively well, except for some, I don't know, let's say aches and pains in the hands and some minor renos, um, once we've identified them as having systemic sclerosis, limited or diffuse, there is a lot that needs to go in in terms of evaluating internal organ involvement. So I'll order pulmonary function tests, echocardiogram, and a high-res CT in diffuse patients. In limited patients, I'll just do the PFT and the echo. Um, if a lot of hand involvement is occurring, occupational therapy is important to think about early. Uh, and if this is a patient, especially with diffuse disease, home blood pressure monitoring is important. And then I'll, I'll move on to discuss some of the other treatment considerations, consideration of malignancy workup, and so on. So, so autoantibodies, uh, all of us rheumatologists really love to order a lot of labs, and uh, we're, we're expert at that. Um, so autoantibodies are, are really actually quite important in systemic sclerosis. So even though it's defined clinically, um, these are some of our best biomarkers for helping us determine what our patient's prognosis is in terms of their risks of future organ system involvement. Um, in systemic sclerosis, the autoantibodies are usually mutually exclusive, uh, and it, nothing's ever 100%, um, but we generally don't see patients have a centromere and a scleroderma 70 antibody, um, and they also don't usually switch, um, whereas in lupus, sometimes we'll see patients at one point in their disease have a certain autoantibody profile, and then later their disease can evolve and they can develop um, more autoantibodies. We don't generally see that in systemic sclerosis, maybe sometimes in overlap. Um, Autoantibody prevalence varies by geographic region. So, for example, um, in certain European countries, we see very, very low level of the RNA polymerase 3 antibody, uh, which is not common, but more common in the U.S. Um, it, these patients have an ANA positive most of the time. 90 to 95% is what's generally um, seen although it's important to pay attention to the testing methods. And I think 
um, especially over the last couple, I don't know, years, we're needing to use more and more commercial labs, Quest and LabCorp based on insurance requirements. And you can see a lot of variability in these different labs. Um, and also, uh, the ANA can be ordered in these different labs with um, variable testing methods. So um, the ANA can be done by immunofluorescence in any of the commercial labs, but has to be ordered specifically. Sometimes it's ordered and it's an ELISA technique, and that misses certain um, antibodies in scleroderma. So some patients with scleroderma will have nucleolar ANAs, and that can be missed uh, with an ELISA testing method. So, so it's just uh, important for us to remember that, you know, just because somebody's ANA negative, it doesn't mean they don't have uh, this group of conditions. <laughs> um, so this is a, a, a slide that I borrowed from um, Dr. Tom Medsker, and um, I like it because it's not a table. <laughs> um, uh, just like a, a Venn diagram of these different antibodies. Um, and so we'll start with the scleroderma 70 antibody. This is associated with interstitial lung disease. It can be seen in patients who have diffuse or limited, but it's more commonly seen in those with diffuse. The RNA polymerase 3 is almost always seen in those who have diffuse systemic sclerosis associated with really severe and rapidly progressive skin disease and kidney disease, and, um, and also can be associated with malignancy. Um, whereas this anti-centromere antibody almost always seen in patients with limited disease and associated specifically with the uh, development of pulmonary arterial hypertension. These three autoantibodies are widely commercially available. Um, and and can be ordered in this context, and those are part of the of the classification criteria. There are some uh, the U1 RNP is also widely commercially available. We get that as part of our um, extractable nuclear antibodies when we are looking at lupus, and that is seen with overlap or myositis or interstitial lung disease. There are a lot of other autoantibodies that are much rarer, but they are becoming um, increasingly commercially available. So, for example, um, Quest Diagnostics has a scleroderma panel that now includes a lot of them. Most labs have a PMSCL now. Um, uh, other um, labs that are send-outs uh, can, can do these uh, blood tests as well. Um, and I don't order them in everybody uh, with scleroderma, but in patients who are negative for SCL70, negative for PAL3 and centromere, if, if I think that they might be helpful for me, I will order them. Um, and this is just a table that, that goes on to show these different kind of disease manifestations. So it's, it's helpful in terms of understanding risk. So when I meet a patient with uh, scleroderma and SCL70 positive, I know that patient has pretty much a 75% chance of developing clinically important interstitial lung disease uh, in their life. 
out. So I can keep that in mind when I'm deciding their therapies and how frequently I need to follow their pulmonary function tests and so on. Over the last couple of years, the, um, the association between systemic sclerosis and malignancy has been evaluated. And in some patients with scleroderma, when they present right around the time of their presentation, they're diagnosed with cancer as well. And um, there are a few case reports of patients whose scleroderma responds to cancer therapy, although we also do see patients who, despite treatment of cancer, uh, the scleroderma persists. Um, and then it just becomes a question of, um, of, of how we balance treatment of the two problems. Um, so dermatomyositis is another rheumatologic condition where we see uh, potential of this condition as a perineoplastic process. And in dermato, um, the standardized incidence ratio of cancer is three to about eight. Whereas in scleroderma, it's 1.4 to about 3. So there is this increased risk compared to population-based controls. Um, so the group at Hopkins has um, looked at this uh, quite deeply. And um, just to describe it briefly because it's so interesting, they looked at a group of patients, uh, a very small subset of patients who had tumors uh, that were available to them to study, and they were able to see that those tumors had mutations in their RNA polymerase 3 protein, which induced the autoantibody formation in, um, and, and may have led to systemic sclerosis. So it's very kind of thought-provoking. Um, now, of course, we don't see cancer in all of our patients. Um, and then other patients with systemic sclerosis develop cancer uh, later in the condition. Um, patients with interstitial lung disease and chronic inflammation may have increased risk for lung cancer. Um, so there's, there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and, um, and this sort of just goes on to say that. Specifically, though, the patients with RNA polymerase 3 antibody have this risk, as well as those that are antibody negative. I'll keep talking about those polymerase 3 patients. They're also at highest risk for scleroderma renal crisis. So scleroderma renal crisis is, is rare on rare, right? So the scleroderma patients are rare. This happens, you know, in the literature we see 5 to 20% of patients. Uh, it's, it's probably on the lower side of that. Um, seen more commonly in patients with rapidly progressive diffuse scleroderma. Um, treatment with prednisone at um, doses greater than 15 milligrams is uh, a, a significant risk factor for the development of this. So um, rheumatologists do tend to avoid uh, moderate or high-dose steroids in these patients. Um, and it's generally seen in patients with earlier disease. Um, it's something that we monitor very carefully for. And I um, recommend my patients like this one that um, presented in the case 
to, um, to monitor their blood pressures at home, even if they're normotensive. And I have them write it down so that they have to remember what the blood pressures actually are instead of just assuming they're all normal and okay with a clear plan of action if blood pressures change. Um, so I have them contact me. Um, obviously, people have different baseline blood pressures. Um, so, you know, we, this is sort of something that we tailor individually. Um, patients who develop renal crisis do well if they're treated with ACE inhibitors early, with the ACE inhibitors titrated to blood pressure control. But we found that ACE inhibitors don't prevent renal crisis, so we can't just meet a patient, you know, give them some low-dose lisinopril and feel that they're protected. Uh, actually, some literature shows that patients who are on ACE inhibitors before developing renal crisis actually wind up doing worse. And the reason for that's not clear. Um, so initial treatment decisions in these patients really depend on organ system involvement. And these initial visits with these patients can take a lot of time. And uh, a lot of time we'll need a lot of close follow-up right in the beginning to get everything set because we'll be addressing Raynaud, GI issues, maybe arthritis and myositis, screening for cardiac involvement. I mentioned these patients all need an echo. Uh, in the beginning, I'll, I'll get an EKG as well as a baseline and, um, and then follow up with that. Um, and then um, in terms of skin and lung disease, the lung disease, um, in, including interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension, these are the leading causes of death and systemic sclerosis. Um, in the 70s, it was renal crisis, uh, but they, they, um, it has changed. This, this slide shows data up to the early 2000s, but it, the same trend persists today. And pulmonary disease and scleroderma uh, if it's parenchymal disease or interstitial lung disease, generally we see an NSIP or a UIP pattern. Uh, about 10 to 15 percent of patients will develop uh, pulmonary vascular disease, which can be World Health Organization group one, two, or three, meaning that it could be pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary hypertension secondary to heart disease or secondary to lung disease. Um, these patients also can have uh, chronic aspiration, and they have myopathy, which affects their um, respiration as well, or restriction of their um, chest wall if they have severe cutaneous disease. So this is a collage of some of my patients' CAT scans, where this patient has very minimal uh, ground glass opacities in the posterior lung fields. Um, I could see that being called potential atelectasis, but very, very mild changes there. This is a patient who has gone on to progress and has a little bit more uh, interstitial changes and starting to develop some uh, degree of bronchiectasis. And this is a patient with severe fibrosis and honeycombing. Um, this patient went on to die from respiratory failure. Um, this, um, this, this image um, is meaningful to me because I think 
it doesn't project that well, so I apologize for that. But it does um, show a, a couple of things. One is that uh, you might be able to see that, or you'll take my word for it, that this is her esophagus. <laughs> And this is an air fluid level uh, in the esophagus. So this esophagus is wide open. And then it's really obvious that her right lung is much worse than her left lung. And this is a patient who had repeated chronic aspirations due to her severe esophageal disease. And there is an association between GERD and interstitial lung disease where uh, those patients who have significant reflux um, do tend to have um, worse pulmonary function test parameters. So this is, um, I think, thought-provoking, and I don't know if treating reflux aggressively would help prevent interstitial lung disease. I, I don't, nobody knows that, but it is an association that is seen and it is something that, um, that, that deserves further study prospectively for sure. Um, it's a lot to, a lot of these patients have bad reflux. They go on PPIs. They're, they could be on them forever. Um, and, and then maybe we shouldn't have them on PPIs forever because then they're going to develop kidney issues or, you know, they have potential um, to have worse osteoporosis or things like that. So there's a lot that we're balancing in terms of symptom management. But then, you know, I, I think this kind of idea, it, it does um, make us want to do our best that we can for their reflux. So ILD is common in scleroderma. In autopsy studies, which were done a really long time ago and um, are subject to bias, I would guess, um, ILD is seen in, in most patients. If we do um, HRCTs and look for prevalence of ILD, we'll see up to 90% of patients with scleroderma will have abnormalities on high-res CT. And then someplace between 40 to 75% will have abnormalities in pulmonary function tests. So that's, that's common. Does it always need to be treated when we see it? So this is um, sort of an algorithm to think about whether we need to treat uh, interstitial lung disease. Um, that's, you know, put together by um, a, a rheumatology and pulmonary group. Um, and they suggest that if you see radiographic evidence of interstitial lung disease and the patient is symptomatic from it to consider treatment, which I think makes sense. And uh, if a patient is asymptomatic, they recommend uh, following PFTs every three months. Uh, maybe every three to six months would be something that might be more practical. Um, and if we see a significant and sustained decline in FVC or DLCO um, verse, or if we see radiographic progression or the development of symptoms, then we should really think about um, treating these patients. I actually think the question of whether the patients are symptomatic is, um, is sometimes tricky in scleroderma patients because um, they may not complain of shortness of breath. Um, they may just stop doing activities. Um, so they just change their whole life and they don't, you know, 
take the stairs anymore or they stop taking their walk or they just adjust things. So I do find that in these patients um, that I have to kind of dig a little bit. Um, so how to treat, here are some considerations and the base of evidence um, to, to think about them. Um, not, nothing is FDA approved to treat systemic sclerosis, not, not anything. Um, so anything I'm talking about is not FDA approved. It's a rare disease, um, and we definitely do borrow from other fields in order to, um, to treat the patients. Um, so uh, MMF is a very common initial first choice of scleroderma patients. Um, I'm an investigator in a... Um, in the Prospective Registry of Early Systemic Sclerosis, or PRESS, which is a multicenter cohort of patients with um, early scleroderma in, uh, in the U.S. It's been enrolling since 2012, um, and um, we have 239 patients in this study. Um, it's difficult to get registries going and, and Registries and collaboration are so important in rare diseases like scleroderma. Um, Nicole and I were talking before about uh, these things that are run basically with love and no money, and this is one of those uh, kinds of studies. Um, so this is, it, it, it has gotten funding since, but it, it is um, remarkable. There's a group that's really coming together um, to, to help study these patients. Um, so, but we looked at our, our patients and we looked at just treatments, what are done, what sort of um, the trends basically. And we did see that um, over half of our patients, over 60% of them were treated with MMF. Methotrexate was the um, next most common immunosuppressive. Most of the patients in this registry of early systemic sclerosis are treated with um, immunosuppressive medications, although not all. And um, those patients who um, have ILD at baseline were most likely to be treated with MMF. So I want to look a little bit about the history of studying the treatment of scleroderma uh, interstitial lung disease. So this study, scleroderma lung study, this is scleroderma lung study one now, um, was um, published in 2006. And this was a study with 158 patients enrolled in 13 centers with diffuse and limited scleroderma with ILD. And patients were randomized to receive either cyclophosphamide um, orally for a year versus placebo. And they looked at outcomes at one year. Um, and the primary outcome favored... Uh, cyclophosphamide because there was less of a decline in the force vital capacity, but not an improvement. And, and there were some improvements in vitality domain and skin scores, which I'll go through. So this is looking at the PFTs and how they changed in this study. So in the patients who got a year of oral cyclophosphamide, which is difficult to take, this is like a really toxic therapy. Patients will have significant hair loss. They get infections. They need a lot of lab monitoring. So patients who undergo this um, therapy 
uh, for a year, which is actually pretty uncommonly done in practice. Um, they had their FVC changed from 67.6% predicted to 66% predicted. Uh, so it decreased by one percentage point at a year versus in the placebo group where it decreased by um, 2.6 percentage points. So this, this was statistically um, significant, but is it clinically significant? Um, well, you know, may, maybe not. Um, Maybe we have to see a little bit more. And then the diffusion um, capacity, there was no significant difference between the two groups in terms of the decline. So this is a frequency distribution, a different kind of way of looking at it. Maybe this is a better way to look at it rather than looking at averages. So you can see, because it is true that patients respond differently to these treatments, where some people respond and some people don't. So looking at frequency distribution, we saw that of those patients that took the cyclophosphamide, half got better and half got worse with respect to their PFTs, or the FEC. And um, in terms of the placebo group, uh, about 74% worsened and 26% improved with respect to their uh, percent predicted FVC. So, okay, maybe, maybe this is something that we should think about. Certainly, um, there were more treatment-related toxicities in the cyclophosphamide group. In terms of deaths, it was the same between placebo and the cyclophosphamide group. So, I mean, this was a good study. It was um, a big uh, randomized controlled study. It did show some degree of superiority to placebo. It was placebo-controlled, so really strong study design. Um, there was a lot of dropout in the cytoxan group. Um, so it wasn't clear whether, whether this was very beneficial. You could, kind, you could argue it in different directions. Um, then a follow-up study looked at these patients at 24 months, and actually that FVC improvement as well as a lot of the other kinds of um, factors that improved in the cyclophosphamide group like um, dyspnea index, skin scores, um, disability indices, um, those were not apparent at 24 months. So this wasn't a sustained re response. So that um, was, you know, just pretty depressing. Um, so a, a second study was published over the last couple of years, the um, scleroderma lung study too. And this one looked at mycophenolate and compared it to cyclophosphamide. So no placebo here. And um, it is really uh, hard to do placebo-controlled trials. These are patients that, um, that expect therapy. Um, and e even if you can argue that it's not clear that therapy is meaningful, um, it, it is really hard to recruit a trial uh, for patients uh, with placebo control. Um, so, um, in this study, cyclophosphamide and MMF both resulted in improved FEC percent predicted, but the MMF was clearly better tolerated with, um, with fewer 
um, with a with a increased probability for continuation in the study. A lot of the patients who were treated with cyclophosphamide just had to stop therapy because it's difficult to tolerate. And if we look at that same kind of frequency distribution curve, we see um, that we get about 70% of the MMF improving on their PFTs and 65% of the cyclophosphamide improved on the PFTs. Um, so that is, um, that's reassuring that there's some benefit here. Um, so, so although we're seeing some benefit here, this is not a cure. This is not where we stop uh, in terms of helping these patients. So, but it does, I think, help us form our, our um, what to do in terms of initial considerations of management. Um, so what about initial considerations of management of scleroderma skin disease? What, what should we do for that? Um, so the way we assess scleroderma skin disease in the context of clinical trials is with the modified Rodnan skin score. And this is um, totally low tech but um, requires some training. And the rheumatologist uh, palpates the skin in 17 different areas of the body, so fingers, hands, forearms, upper extremities, and so on, as, as in this diagram. Um, normal skin is graded as a zero. Severe, uh, thickened skin is graded as a three. And then in between, it's either a one or a two. And um, this has been studied and actually has very high intra-rater observ ob uh, observation reliability. Um, inter-rater can be, uh, is not as strong. And so when we design clinical trials, we really have to have the same rater do the skin score um, at each visit. Um, and when we look at the natural history, now the skin score isn't necessarily used in clinical practice, um, although it, it could be helpful. Um, the uh, natural history of scleroderma skin disease is also something that's important to think about when we look at clinical trial data, because uh, it, the skin itself, this is plotting um, the modified Rodnan skin score over time. Mm -hmm. It tends to get a lot worse early. So within, let's say, the first two years of the disease, and each patient will have a slightly different tempo. And then it does tend to improve a bit on its own. Now, you know, somebody whose skin score is this high isn't really going to be happy. They're not improved to the degree they'd like to be. But, um, but we see this trend for improvement uh, just over time. So we have to, we can't just assume that seeing improvement in the context of a clinical trial, that could just be natural history. Um, and, and then it doesn't change that much. This is an old slide from one of our studies. And, you know, this is um, the, the uh, mean is the black line in the middle. So just, you know, a, a slight change over time. Um, so it's hard. These clinical trials are hard. <laughs> um, other aspects about doing scleroderma clinical trials and looking at the skin is that 
Um, it's very hard to get a large sample size. Um, the duration of treatment is short. And um, there can also be this uh, phenomenon of regression to the mean. So we see the, the skin score improve in patients who have more severe disease at trial entry, and we see it tend to worsen for those who have less severe disease at trial entry. So these are a lot of caveats for people who do clinical trials in systemic sclerosis skin. So what to do for your patient? Um, so there is a good basis of evidence to consider methotrexate for systemic sclerosis skin disease with um, several studies showing um, clinical improvement that is um, significant compared to placebo. Um, you know, the minimally clinically important difference in terms of treating scleroderma skin is about three to five points. Um, and so it does achieve that. Um, and this is, you know, an evidence-based recommendation for the treatment of scleroderma skin disease. Um, mycophenolate is being used uh, more commonly. Retrospective data shows um, some improved MRSS, and so so do I, I'm not showing you everything, but so do small prospective studies. Um, in in this um, retrospective study, uh, they noted that uh, treatment with MMF improved skin score. When they stopped MMF here, the skin score tended to rebound, and then it did improve again when restarted. So this, um, you know, is some degree of evidence. We talked about scleroderma lung studies one and two. So a post hoc analysis of the uh, skin score data from the subset of patients in those studies that had diffuse scleroderma did show that about 40% had MRSS improvement on MMF. That's about the same percent that had improvement on um, cytoxan compared to about 25% who had MRSS improvement on placebo. So this is something that we can, um, that we can think about um, in terms of what to do for these patients. And again, is, is being used um, increasing. It's, it's not clear at this point if starting it early, like the way we now um, start treatment for um, rheumatoid arthritis as early as possible with methotrexate and move on to biologics to prevent, um, to prevent disability from RA is, is treating scleroderma early in that way. Would we have that same sort of benefit? It makes sense that we would but the studies haven't been done to show that at this point in time. Um, so also in, in the scleroderma uh, world, um, there has been a lot of attention to autologous stem cell transplantation. Um, so I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Um, there are um, three studies that I'm gonna mention. Um, and uh, that have, you know, taken place over, over the last decade. Um, the first one was a single center study out of Northwestern where they, the patients were, just 19 patients in this study were randomized to receive um, non-myeloablative 
metapoietic stem cell transplant versus IV cyclophosphamide for six months. Um, and they, um, and I'll, I'll go on to, to describe that a little bit. There was another multicenter prospective open label randomized control study that looked at stem cell transplant versus IV cyclophosphamide for 12 months, and that looked at 156 patients. That was a European study. This had longer follow-up. And then um, more recently, the SCOT trial, which stands for scleroderma cyclophosphamide or transplant, which had a myeloablative uh, stem cell transplant with total body irradiation, um, was also recently published and was, these, these were all successful studies. So in the first study, uh, 10 patients received stem cell transplant, nine received IV cyclophosphamide. Of the 10 patients who received stem cell transplant, all 10 improved, and that was defined as an uh, MRSS improvement of 25% or an FVC improvement by 10%. So all of those patients met that definition for improvement. Um, and in the... Um, in the, in the other group, those cyclophosphamide group, eight progressed and one remained stable. Of those eight that progressed, one was then allocated to stem cell transplantation, uh, sorry, seven were allocated to stem cell transplantation, and all seven of those met that, that improvement um, characterization. So that was very kind of um, exciting data when that came out. Um, and this is another way of, of showing these same sorts of trends of improvement more granularly, looking at the skin score, the predicted FBCs, DLCO, showing those same trends. This study only had two years of follow-up. Uh, the patients in this study, there were no deaths. There were um, some uh, treatment-related infections, um, but um, so, so it... That is what it is. Um, this next study looked at many more patients. So this was 156 patients with a median follow-up of 5.8 years. And the findings here were a little bit different. Um, in this study, uh, it, in the end, it did show improved event-free survival in the transplant group compared to the control group. Um, but there were more events in the, um, in the transplant group, um, at, at one year. So it, early on, these patients were not doing great. So in the transplant group, in the first year, there were eight treatment-related deaths versus zero treatment-related deaths in the, in the cyclophosphamide group. There were, um, at two years, there, those events became comparable, that included like organ failure and, and serious infections. And um, at four years, um, there was a trend to more events in the cytoxan group. So overall, the events during the study in the transplant group, there were 19 deaths overall and 23 deaths overall in the, in the cyclophosphamide group. So I think, you know, that was a very high treatment-related mortality in the first uh, year to two. And um, although some of these patients who receive the transplant have very dramatic improvements, 
uh, possibly even disease remission. Um, the at what cost, I think, was a big question. So then this um, study came out just this year, um, and this also showed improved survival and improved event-free survival in the stem cell transplant group. Um, they also did a global rank composite score, uh, which is a novel way of looking at, at these sort of um, at a composite outcome for these patients. They also looked at improvement and worsening and organ failure and death as a composite outcome. And, um, and this showed, uh, this favored um, the stem cell transplantation. Um, in this study, there was only a 3% treatment-related mortality. And so it... Um, it, it does change that balance a little bit and is something, I think, to think about. Um, it, it is still a very difficult procedure to go through uh, with significant potential morbidity. Uh, so, you know, stem cell transplant is definitely not a, a f the, the therapy of choice for everybody with systemic sclerosis. We have to really think about the patients that we select. So in these studies, the patients were selected for serious, uh, significant internal organ involvement, um, especially lung disease, but it couldn't be too bad and it couldn't. <laughs> so uh, because then they were, um, it had to be sort of just at the right time. Um, in the first study, there was... Um, in, sorry, in the second study I presented there, they did include patients with cardiac disease, and those patients aren't included in the Scott study um, and because the, the regimens are, are actually, um, can be quite cardiotoxic, and so that may be part of why there was less um, treatment-related uh, uh, mortality. Um, I, I know I haven't left enough time to talk. There are a few more points that I'm going to make, and I'll do them um, quickly, and hopefully we'll still have a few minutes for questions. So I think what's clear from what I've shown so far is that we really have a way to go in terms of therapies for systemic sclerosis. We really need improved therapies. So in the beginning, I showed you a cartoon with a lot of different types of cells that could be involved in the pathogenesis of systemic sclerosis. Um, B cell involvement is, is part of that, and rituximab is a therapy of interest. It's been looked at um, in retrospective studies and in some prospective studies um, that show potential benefit in selected cases. Our group um, looked at belimumab, which is um, a uh, B lymphocyte stimulator protein inhibitor. Um, it, um, it leads to B cell apoptosis and decreased autoantibody formation. It's approved for lupus. So we studied it in systemic sclerosis. And we did see that there, this was a tiny pilot trial, um, but we did see that there was improvement in MRSS, both in the patients treated with belimumab, with uh, MMF background therapy, and in the patients in the placebo group. So they were getting MMF therapy. We saw MRSS improvement. The 
Median change was um, an improvement of 10 in the bulimumab group and three in the placebo group. It didn't achieve statistical significance. And then this is um, work that we did with Dr. Whitfield and uh, Dr. Martianoff, who's here. Um, excellent work that looked at, um, at the patients in this study and the changes in their gene expression. And we did see changes in gene expression um, in the bulimumab group. Um, especially in the improvers showing decreased expression of inflammatory and fibrotic um, genes and pathways post-treatment, as well as helping to show us um, that we were um, hitting our target as B-cell signaling was decreasing in these treatments. Um, the, these changes in gene expression were not seen in the placebo group uh, and were seen more clearly in the improvers. And so, again, we need a, a lot more new therapies. These are my uh, last couple of slides. Um, I, I do want to mention linabasum, which is in trial here. And um, Nicole is the site PI for a phase three study um, looking at linabasum uh, in systemic sclerosis. We did a phase two study, and it showed improvement in the um, CRIS, which is a novel uh, composite outcome that we're using now with some improvement in skin score as well. And again, um, uh, Dr. Whitfield and Dr. Martianoff also um, uh, performed gene expression studies showing um, on target uh, and decrease in inflammation and fibrosis pathways. So it's in very um, interesting. There's a lot of a um, lot of room for improvement and a lot of work that needs to be done for sure. Um, so um, with that, I'll wrap up. And uh, thank you so much for your attention. This is our group at the Scleroderma Walk. I'm a little curious when you said you were targeting B cells with, with a therapy. Do, are the antibodies just markers of disease or are they causal for the disease? It's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about TNF therapies? Do those seem to be used Okay, so um, anti-TNFs have been um, used in systemic sclerosis um, in, in small studies. Um, and um, systemic sclerosis is different from RA in a lot of different ways, but um, TNF is upregulated in some patients to some degree. Um, however, TNF, anti-TNFs, when you use them in certain groups, can induce um, flare. So like in lupus patients, sometimes they cause lupus flare. And in scleroderma patients, they do sometimes lead to kind of flare. So that is something I've seen, um, the, and it has been reported in, in cases. However, in studies looking at anti-TNFs specifically for scleroderma-related arthritis, um, there is some improvement, too, and not everybody has these effects. I think we do tend to shy away from them uh, because of that. Um, but One more question. We'll probably squeeze in. Okay, so that was perfect timing. Great. Great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.